The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello everybody, I'd like to welcome Jim McKee. Jim McKee is a professional visual artist and singer-songwriter from County Tyrone, Ireland, who has been deeply inspired by the Burn and the West of Ireland, which has been his spiritual home since 2001. As a recording artist extending beyond that of a visual artist, he performed across Ireland, the UK, France and the USA with his songs, which have also been featured in films and documentaries. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hello, hello, Simon. How are you doing? Uh, great to be here. Thank you. Good. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much. It's, it's, uh, I'm delighted to be to be doing something. Probably pretty busy with your new gallery opening and everything, are you? I, I have been very, very busy. Yeah, yeah very busy. Get, was getting it ready and getting it open. And then I got open for about 12 days and then I had to close, you know, with the, the lockdowns and stuff, you know. So it's kind of... You know, it's sort of stopping and starting. So, so t- you live in Clare, don't you, Jim? Well, I, I used to live in Clare in Bell Harbour. So did. I lived there for about near enough 11 years, uh, 10, uh, 10 or 11 years. Right. But I, I'm living now presently uh, in uh, Tyrone, in a wee village called Donnick Moor, County Tyrone, outside Dungannon. Okay, brilliant. I've been I've been living here about, uh, what, must be, I'm back home here, about oh, five years, I think it is. Is home Donnick Moor or Cookstown? Or where is home exactly for you? <coughs> Well, I was born. I was brought. I was born in Cookstown. I brought up in Cookstown. It's nine miles from here, so it is. This is a village nine miles away. So it's the same county, Tyrone. But uh, home would be sort of, I suppose, where I'm living at the minute. You know, is which is Donick more. But um, but like I was, I was brought up in Cookstown. Although I left there very young, you know. So, you know, although Tyrone would be my home county, you know. Although I have a lot of love for uh, yes, County yes. Clare as well. You know? So you spent eleven years in Clare, and and as I said in your introduction, Clare gave you a lot of inspiration for your art and music, didn't it? Oh, massive, massive! You know, it's uh, I miss it still. You know, it's it's such a be- such a special place. You know yourself, Simon, for for yeah. for music and art. It just feeds you, like you know, the place, the surroundings, of the place. Like uh, I've never seen a place like it anywhere. I've travelled a fair bit and. The colours in County Clare, like living in the burn, there's such a the light, the, the way it reflects, you know, off the limestone, and uh, then you've got yeah. the, then you've got the sea beside you, so you're getting all that light, you know, it's beautiful. Like for so many people over the years, it's been such a great inspiration, as you said, colours in the sky, colours on the and on, on the terra firma and the sea, it's just beautiful, isn't it? Oh, it's spectacular, you know, it's 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 magical, and you know, as well as that, like the, the people are beautiful as well, you know. It's there's some yes. I've made some great friends in, in, in County Galway and you know County Clare, like in just sort of South Galway, that you know, that crossing over there going into the burn from Galway. Uh like yeah. especially in around Bell Harbour, like I, I made the best of friends and, and down as far as say even as far as Fenor, uh Ballywachan, you know, all along that stretch. There's mm-hmm. amazing people you know beautiful place yes so tell us you know about your early life in in cookstown like you you went to you went to did you do your primary school national school there in cookstown yeah i i was i was brought up in uh, cookstown and i was brought up in a housing state and i was born in 1970 i was brought up in a housing state in a place called cookstown and uh, munrush it was a housing state and uh, you know to be honest that uh, we lived in the same house well for about till i was 12 and uh it, it it was uh, it wasn't the best of times to be honest. You know, with, with the the situation here at the time, you know, with the troubles was quite, mm. kind of 
I experienced a yeah. lot. Of, I, I absorbed and experienced a lot of troubles, you know, and I, I don't really go into that much. I try to I try to not talk about it, but it is a big part of my life, you know, and it's coming back here. I realize that, you know, and but I was brought up, I was, you know, that's sort of probably where I got my introduction to music was in that housing state with the, the marching bands, you know, um, there's a lot of marching bands and I was in a marching band as a kid and I used to play the flute, you know, and play all the marching tunes at the time. And plus I, I had an uncle who played the guitar and he sang in a folk band called Sprig and I was completely mad about Elvis and about, about folk music, you know, and, and uh, I love anything, any music, you know, like I used to follow Protestant bands and I was a Catholic and I'd have, I'd have a green band stick. I'd be following these Protestant bands, you know, up the lanes and stuff. Yeah. They would be rehearsing, like, and, you know, it was unheard of, really. But I used to just love the music, and I didn't care what, what who was playing. And then I was in a Catholic band years later, the INF flute band in 1979, nine years of age. I learned whistle and wow. flute. And then during, when the hunger strike happened in 1981, I ended up, that band broke up and we started up an our band called the Wolf Tone Independent Flute Band, which I prayed at every Heath Block parade there ever was. I ended up being a member of that band and praying at all that. And like, like we were down in Dublin and everything and we were all over the country. But like, it was mad, like an, a mad music experience, you know. I had my uncle playing music in his folk band and at the time it wasn't very cool to be playing folk music actually. It was dangerous, you know, sort of yeah. where I was living at, you know. It was, it, it, things were things were tense, you know. Did folk music kind of bring connotations with it because of what people were singing about, you know? Because obviously, uh, on the Protestant side and the Catholic side, there were different lyrics, and you know, whether it be the rebel songs or whatever, the folk music was slightly different, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was, you know, and, and you you cut it, it showed what you know it showed your maybe your, your religion, and you know, and for that you could have been in a pub or you could have been in a somewhere, and you could have possibly got shot, you know. You know, for that, mm. you know, and then like, as well as that, like, you know, if you were playing Gaelic football or, you know, carrying a Gaelic football bag down the street, you could have been showing your colours, you know, that could have showed you were a Catholic, you know, very tense times, you know. Like, it was out of 19, sort of, the late 70s, early 80s that I became a boxer as well. I joined a boxing club, but I didn't want to box, but I, I, I joined a boxing club because where I lived, the housing state I lived in, was four alleyways or four laneways, say, to that housing state. It was like a circle. And... You pick yeah. you pick your lane which lane you're going to get your kicking on every night coming home from boxing or football or you know going to school in the morning or coming back from school, like we, you know all the, all the people in our, our housing state was mixed at the start but when things got tense, everything divided we all went to one side of the town and all went to the, another side of the town, but where I lived happened to be a majority Protestant and then we were one of the last families left there and you know we got, I got I got beat up a lot you know was it something you know, that was always premeditated. Like, as you said, if you were coming home from boxing or football, were they waiting for you the new t the times you'd come home? Or was it just by accident they'd be hanging around? After school, you'd have been, it happened a lot on going to school and coming home from late at night, you know, you just, if you went around the wrong corner at the wrong time, you bumped into a gang, you know, and there was a lot of gangs yeah. in the area I was living, you know. Um, a, lot, a lot of some organisations were formed from the housing state I was in, or brought up in, you know, like LVF would have been, that yeah. kind of stuff would have been formed there, you know, some of it, you know. I like it, it, you know, when I look back on it all, it's metal, you know, like, you know, it's, 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 it was like a dream, like, you know, like it's, yeah, it, it's, still, it's very surreal. Aye, it's, you know, and I, I'm, I'm really glad that I did get a, you know, get to travel a lot and get away from it all because 
life's short, you know. Yeah, and you know, I, I think it's something that obviously people in the Republic of Ireland, they knew about the troubles, but because obviously they never lived in them, everything they saw was on the news and, you know, the, not much came down south. But I remember myself, um, I lived in Letterkenny for two or three years and I remember uh, that was in the 90s, the late 90s. And um, I remember going to Derry, you know, which was only like 20 kilometers away or so and uh, from Letterkenny. But it was completely different. And I, I remember, you know, sometimes even I remember getting a taxi once from Derry and the taxi driver said to me, are you a Fenian bastard? And I said, um, and I was, I said, well, and I didn't know what to say because that was the weirdest question I ever had. And he said, I'm only joking with you. But the people like that, even between Letterkenny and Derry, you know, and there was, I used to work with lads from around Raffaut and, you know, places that would be all very close. And the thing is, there was this kind of testing people all the time. Like, what are you about? What are you up to? What, where do you come from? What's your background? I, I call it sort of like, I, I have an inbuilt thing probably that I've had for years, like the, they call it the Northern Ireland Instinct. And I, I have a friend who I played music with and we were over in Isle of Man one time playing music and we're coming back and, you know, on the boat. And we got on the boat and we sat beside these people and they said, are you going to play some fuck music? You know, they seen the whistle hanging out of the bag. And yeah. they just happened to be people that didn't like what we done, you know. And, but... When we sat down, my friend turned around to me and, and he just looked at me and we, we felt uncomfortable from the minute we sat down. And we just had this sense these people were involved in something, you know, and we, we, could set, we could sense it, you know, and we didn't even have to ask the question, you know. But there was a lot of that, you know, I think that's the thing that we have in the North, you know, like, sadly, you know, it, it probably was a survival uh, thing, you know, where you, you, you know, and like I, I've had incidents as well where, you know, I, I've had some very horrific incidents really over the years you know way sort of mid 90s early 90s late 80s mid 80s you know late 70s mid 70s but there's one incident in particular where a friend was with me from Navin, you know and you're just chatting about the, his accent and he was told if he didn't shut up with his accent he would get the baton in the mouth you know we were in the wrong area we were in the wrong place at the wrong time in Belfast one night you know and <clears throat> that can happen you know or did happen and and the thing about it is if you're brought up in that environment, maybe, as you say, you have that instinct and you know to get out of there. But I think in the past, for some people who have visited the north and Armagh and different places, have got a shock because they, they they would be welcomed by the people and people would be all very nice. But if they kind of felt like you weren't of their tribe or anything, then you probably had a problem and you had to scarper pretty quick that's it you know and and to be really honest like Simon like I, I had lots of friends in the well, as well you know we were both from all different religions you know and uh, you know I have to say like joining a boxing club and, and, and um, like I boxed with Wayne McCullough who boxed for the world title and he was in the same race boxing team we, we travelled together and I used to go to England and places in Wales boxing with Ulster teams and Irish teams and when I look back now you know that all really saved my, my attitude and my, my bigotry and my you know it, it saved me from been very small minded, you know. And like when you get out of these when we when I got out of these places you know, when I got out of the, the where I was brought up and out of the places I got to see the, there was more to the world than just you know, like I remember the first time I boxed in England and thinking, you know, there was there was Union Jack flags and the the housing state I had been brought up and been covered in Union Jacks. And I remember seeing them over in England and thinking and meeting people that were Protestant people with Union Jacks but weren't they didn't treat me the way that these different people treated me. And I started to realise, I started to figure th 
figure things out for myself, you know, at a young age that, you know, these people were different than these people, you know. And, like, like even there's, there's something happened to me recently as well, or, well, a few years ago. It, it educated me for life, probably, you know. I, I do a lot of work nowadays, you know, in France, and some of it's involved with sort of the World War, the First World War, and it all happened to a, a teacher that I met during a gig in, in Clifton one night, but to cut a long story short, I'm joking off here, but I, I I got to learn that, you know, when I went to France and visit the graveyards and the World Wars and read all the stories and hear all the history, that the World War was more than a black and white documentary, you know, and more than just, you know, more than, you know, British V sort of, it, it was a lot more to it all. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, could do with being educated about a lot of stuff, you know, in life, really. You know, I, I just got my, I got my mind well open, you know, from traveling and through my music and through my, uh, my boxing. I, I think that's the thing because, you know, the the uneducated about any subject, whether it be war or politics or economy or whatever, the thing is we see so much on the television and the media and it's kind of fed to us. And, you know, we're, we're a little protected too because I think it's when you go to those places like Normandy and France and, and even, like, as I said, with the troubles in the north, um, I think then your mind is opened up and you realize, well, this is the real life and these people live through this. And, you know, I, I, rem I remember the time, like, obviously, with the OMA bombing and everything. And it, do you know what I mean? For, for a lot of people, when you hear it from 200 miles away on the news or whatever, it's shocking. But when you're up around there and you see the effect it has on people, it's really shocking. Oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Funny, I was in trying to, I was in there just before the, 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 the COVID, you know, hit, um, getting a suit, you know, of a girl in Oma. I was buying a suit and um, she'd been in the bomb, you know, and I was chatting to her and, like, and she's still really scared from it and, and nervous and, you know, it was hard. it was terrible. She started telling us she lost a relative, you know, and stuff. And you know, it was just buying a suit and woman in the main street. So it was, you know, and when you meet people, when you meet when you meet people, and you know, you see the depression the girls suffered and stuff. And you see, you know, I I've met a lot of people you know that have been affected on both sides, you know, by what has happened here. You know, it's it's great to see it's like nobody wants it, you know, and we all want it to stop, and we all want peace now these days. And you know, it's it's it was. It was horrific, really. Looking back, I, I actually—I'm very lucky to be sitting here. I've had a few close shaves, you know. Yeah, when you say there, obviously, you know, um, the boxing kind of saved you a little bit, and um, or a lot maybe. But the thing is, what what when you started boxing, did it kind of give you a, a more confidence to face these people who were giving you grievance on the streets, or how else did it change your life? It kind of gave you a focus, you know, and kept you out of trouble, and you know, like off the streets basically and out of the you know we, we had a man that trained us called Frank Gervin from Klein to know he's dead now God have mercy him but uh, Frank was a legend like and you know he was an Olympic team and all he trained Irish teams but you know the amount of lads that got mixed up in the troubles and, and would have joined things you know my granny used to say join nothing only your hands but that was easier said than <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, but that was, you know, that was easier said than done. You know, when you're getting beat up and hurt, and you know, and it's just the luck of the draw, really. It depends where you're born. You know, what what comes to your doorstep. You know, but uh, like this is a subject I often talk about because it's, you know, it, it can be upsetting and this stuff has happened. But of course, of course, and I, I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate you talking about it because it is part of your history and everything. But these things can be different. I don't mind talking about it. Either. It has to be, you know, you have to sort of talk about it too and let it, you know, to let it sort of 
go and to remember where you come from and stuff. But the thing is, like, the, the, the boxing was a, a great focus and it, it did keep you out of trouble. And, like, you know, you had fights and you were traveling and, you know, you had something to live for and work for, you know, outside of, you know, uh, being beat up in housing. It, it tough, the housing state, it also toughened me up a bit and it, it, it disciplined me. And to this day, there's, there's things I've learned from boxing that are, that are stand to me for life, you know, like just like work, worth, work ethic, you know, and, um, you know, and respect and manners. And you know, we were taught all that in boxing, you know. You know, anything like boxing, martial arts, there's great things because I studied martial arts for years and I had my last podcast guest, you know, my last that was a martial artist, Dave Joyce in Galway. And we were talking about the effect of martial arts on kids and everything and put boxing in the same way. And I mean, you, you'll always have challenges. I remember training and coming out of the, the, the gym in June and you would have the, the traveler guys outside and they wanting to fight you because they just wanted to test themselves. And they would be like, oh, you do karate. You want to fight me in the street and stuff. And it's just there's always someone there to challenge and always someone there to, you know, to, to push you and test you. And the great thing about anything like that, boxing or anything like that, it does teach you self-discipline and it teaches you manners and it teaches you how to get out of those situations without fighting. Yeah, it kind of, you know, like as I always said, any kids, and even my son playing Gaelic football, or he gets sometimes if he lifts the fist on the field, I'd send him, you know, if you want a boxer or you want to fight, join a boxing club, you get all the fighting you want, you know. Yeah. And and you know yeah. and that's the place for it, you know, and, and like it, and it's controlled and disciplined and you know nobody gets hurt. But it's nice to have it, you know, and although it can be I don't I, I very rarely ever used it outside the ring and, and that's what I was taught, you know. But it, it's also but it's nice to know that like you have it, you know, and it, it stands to you, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, and you, you also you won an all Ireland title, didn't you? I, I yeah, I won I won uh, I won two, it was in three finals, I won two just but I, I, I kinda Brilliant. I won when I was 17 and I was beaten under 18 when I was 18 and then I was I won when I was 19 I won a light heavy a junior title or intermediate you call it it's junior now and uh, then a box senior I went boxing senior then you know <clears throat> but and I, had three, I, I'd done, I won two yeah won two and I had uh, was a, a box fair in six times a box in the Gaelic Youth Championships as well I, got, I won a silver medal in them sort of against uh, Canada, Scotland, Wales. And, and how was it fighting, sparring against the pocket rocket? That must have been a tough... Me, me, and, me and Wayne was in a room together and, and uh, at one stage in, in Ballina for two weeks and we were training with our ice team in the Downhill Hotel we stayed and, and Dennis Galvin from Moat and uh, Eamon Lahren, he's, he's a world champion as well from Ballymena. Um, there was a good team that, at that time. There was a guy, Paul Ireland as well. And, you know, uh, I, also Eamon McGee would have been around our time. Eamon McGee. I, I used to train with him and it was looking back it was an amazing experience you know and, and um, but it was all turning points for all of us because you know when we look back you know everybody went on to good things you know when he's out out in America you know it was it was an amazing experience you know and, and I enjoyed it you know I lived for it at the time. That's great. And come here, let's um, let's let's talk about your parents. Your 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 father has passed on. Is your mother still alive, or is she? My my mother, yeah, my mother's still alive. She's uh, she, would you believe it? My mother's uh, she's she's coming. She's around seventy two, and she's um, she's nursing still. So she's her, her she works for her sister in a nursing home. My mother's was a brilliant nurse, you know. But she's back wor- working because uh, the, they're short and staff. Wow. They're short and staff at the moment. She, she she sort of retires for like two weeks and then goes back again. <laughs> her sister. <laughs> <laughs> she loves it. She loves it. Yeah, she, she's an amazing woman. My, my mother's a very strong woman and, and very kind woman and very young looking woman and, and very fit. And, you know, she works hard and she, she's very generous and with heart and soul. And 
but like she's a fantastic nurse and she her she's working for her sister at the Minton nursing home and uh, she had the virus as well and she survived it and she she's back working again. I, like she's some woman and she's she's had the vaccine and everything. Great woman, great woman. Yeah. You know, obviously, when I was looking into you a bit and more of your story, you know, the, the one thing that caught my the eye was your your song about your dad, the green fingered man. And the yeah, I mean, your oh, your dad yeah, yeah, was obviously, you. you know, he how many years ago did he pass? He's coming eight years. I, I, you know, my father, I think, to be honest, like he, he's he's a perfect example of a man that maybe didn't live his true potential in his life. You know, he, he was a butcher. And he was a very talented, very talented artist, and a, and a very, very intelligent man, very natural man. You know, he loved nature, and, and like he lived for his garden, and he lived for his children and his wife. But he, he anyway, enjoyed drinking as well <laughs> a lot. But he, yeah, well, but as, he, as a lot do, <laughs> as we do in Ireland. So, uh, but it was, but but he was very. I just know, I know by him, you know, like. Like I wrote another song about him called "Dignity Beyond the Flowers." That was on an album with uh, Green uh, Island Eddie. Uh, so it was, but uh, that was about him walking to work through the troubles. But he always resorted to his garden. And when I look back, he had all these beautiful colours in the garden, you know, for roses and flowers and stuff. But he always like, I I just know I seen two of his paintings, and I know he was a great artist. I heard from teachers, and he didn't have a good experience at school, you know. And and I think as well, you know, back then, you you know, being an artist wouldn't have been sort of. You wouldn't have paid your, or fed your family, you know, being an artist. And it wasn't the thing to do. But I know he had some kind of genius going on in him that never got sort of got out there. But I could see it, you know. So, you know, like when he seen my first paintings when I was 32, I remember him saying to me, the first thing he said was, um, I remember seeing them. Or no, I've seen them before is what he said. That's what it was. I've seen them before. And I knew exactly what he meant because the first paintings I've seen of his was like of a greyhound in the back of a shoebox. It was done very like uh, Jack B. Yeats' style, you know. And I remember it kind of it stuck in my mind when I started to paint, and like I, I was painting. I, I left school at fifteen, and I was painting. And my art teacher came on a book float and asked me to come back to school. You know, but I remember my dad's work stuck in my head, and I only got to see a couple of pieces. You know, and some watercolors that he done. Yeah, so it's great. I mean, because he influenced you a lot. Because you know, obviously, you know, parents are the biggest. Um, you know peer influences we have and and it's great when kids sometimes grow up and they're doing art or music and something comes through them that they recognize from their parents i tell the kind of mom my father was like if there's a full moon he took you down the garden to look at the hawthorn tree and he recited robbie burns poetry you know under the poetry under the moonlight you know that kind of thing you know and you know he and he was he's big into fairy very folklore and stuff, you know, and he, he, he always, you know, that's the kind of stuff he'd been telling us about and, you know, all the plants and stuff. You know, obviously, so you were in school and uh, did you stay in school or did you leave early to work or how, what, how did you, as a teenager, what did you kind of aspire to be? Well, when I was 13, I was working part-time as a milkman for a company in, in Cookstown called Wright Stairies and there was 73 employees and uh, there was three, I suppose, like, a, like a, I don't like to say this, but there was 70 Protestants and three Catholics working for the firm, and I was one of the one of the Catholics. And when I was fifteen, when I was fifteen years of age, I was fifth year at school. And um, the manager of the company, uh, uh, Kenneth McGuckin, he he offered me a full time position in the company. Uh, you no, know, a milkman that would be seven days a week. It was a town run I was doing, and just on the edge of the town, you know, a few country areas, but it was mostly the, the street, the main street. But I was offered this job, so it was a lot of money at the time. It was like you know. I can even tell you it was fifteen pounds sixteen p every Wednesday. You know, was the paycheck back then. Lads my age would have been getting seventeen pound, but it was good money. You know, so 
I took the job, but at that time I was boxing quite seriously and I was at school doing my art. And I remember working down the street one day and, and the art teacher came on the mug float at, when I was, I was about 15 and a half and he came on the mug float. I'd been working, at, I was, I was, I'd stopped school at this stage and, you know, my art teacher came on the mug float and he said, Jim, please come back and finish your art. And I kind of said, I can't. Circumstances at the time, I was living with my father in a flat above the club lad, the Pink Pussycat in Cookstown. And uh, my mother and father weren't, they were broke up at the time. But I was living with my father in this flat and I had to pay the rent. So I had that going on and I had the boxing going on and I had the opportunity of the job, which was a good job. So I took it. But the art was in the back of my mind still. And I was always drawing, writing and sort of creating, you know, and for years, for years, I've always kept a journal, you know, of, of hundreds and hundreds of journals. But I didn't, I couldn't get at the art properly with circumstances plus the boxing and all that. And the money was good and the job, I took it. So I'd done that for a couple of years. And then when I was 17, I left that job because the company was bought over by Dale Farm. And uh, I was given this sort of a handover check. I'd done it for a little while. And then I, I, I started to serve my time as a joiner at 17, a carpenter. I'd done that for a few years. And uh, then I went to England for a while, you know. So that... Uh, so it was, that's the way it sort of went for me, you know. And, and once in around sort of 17, sort of 19, I was, I was still boxing and I served my time as a joiner. And then I quit boxing at 20. I had a very bad fight in America. My last fight was when I was in America. I was fighting with the Irish team out in Boston. And uh, I had a bad fight in around my 20s. I'm skipping stuff here in between, but there was a lot happened. But anyway, I was, no, you're fine, you're fine. But I, I went to America, had a bad fight, you know. And then that's when I kind of came home from America. And then I went to Paris. I went to Euro Disney to work for a year. Uh, I happened to walk into a nightclub one night and this the owner of the nightclub said, you're a man would have a passport, McKee. Do you want to go to Paris tomorrow morning? I said, no problem. Off I went and stayed a year, you know. What were you doing in Euro Disney? When I arrived in Euro Disney, the, the place was just flat, you know, and, and the, like all the African people were there doing a lot of groundwork, you know, Kenyan people. And it was hot and they were doing a lot of groundwork. And I started off doing groundwork, like we were like, putting in pipes with some people from Tyrone here. And... Um, it, we're putting in pipes and stuff and, and water valves and stuff and I was down digging holes and then we went from that we, we kind of went through all the jobs you know when you we went from that to doing groundwork and then carpentry work and uh, painting as well and uh, I was there right till it opened you know I was there from a year previous and uh, I was there the night it was open I was they were still working I was working the change rooms and the, the actors that were presenting the program were still Mickey Mouse was on the tools <laughs> I was I, <laughs> yeah. I was screwing. I was screwing in screws as a in the changing rooms for the guy with the beard that was presenting the show as a ghost. He was going out onto the stage in the middle of it. You know, like it was mad when I looked back. But I worked all over the whole centre of it. I worked all around your Disney. I had a great experience there. That's funny because I also served my time as a carpenter. You know, and uh, I, you know, years later after I left Letterkenny, I went to Holland for a year and I was working on the. I was working as a shuttering carpenter there. So. In Letterkenny, yeah, in Letterkenny, I was fitting kitchens, and then I went to Holland as a shuttering <laughs> carpenter, and um, it was mad because when you say when you're working on something as it's opening, we used to be working on the train lines, uh, the high speed train yep. lines, and um, <laughs> they used to say to us, we had this protocol that if you drop the hammer on near the track because you were working right beside the track, you you couldn't pick it up until the supervisor told you because the trains came so fast that you'd never see them. And uh, you'd see fellas dropping the hammer and they'd be going to pick it up. And all of a sudden there'd be a shout, leave it the fuck alone. Do you want to be saying, that train will fucking hit you faster than you'll know. And, and <laughs> so we used to say, Jesus, talk about working as working on it as it's happening. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, 
I hear you. Like we used to, we used to go in the a small world, and we used to go on the train and sleep. You know, or when get off the wee boat, used to go in this place. We used to jump off the boat in the wee island and sleep behind it, you know, to hide. But no, we, we worked at all the stages in them places. It was it was mental looking back on it. You know, I have so many stories. Like you know, it's it's yeah, a great experience. And and you know, those kind of jobs abroad, working in construction. I mean, they're great because you build great camaraderie between the, the lads. And I remember we working with Scottish, Irish and the Dutch fellas and everything. And you, you, you learn a lot from that. And it's great to kind of carry on with you for your future, isn't it? Oh, big time. Like we, we, we lived in a house in Chesney. Like I lived in different parts of outside of Euro Disney in Paris. But we, we lived in a village in Chesney and we, there was 17 of us in the house. And there was the Kiwi room, you know, there's a lot of Kiwis living in it. And there's Australians and there's Irish, you know, and there's English and all in the one house and with all different rooms, you know, but it was great fun, you know, great fun. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And did you, so like jobs wise, you know, obviously, you know, we're going to get to your music in a minute and everything, but did you stick at the carpentry for a long time or did you get sick of it then later on? I, I stuck at it for a good while, actually, so that, you know, like even, you know, I would like just to sort of wind back, like I was kind of a... Always interested in, in wood when I was young as well, you know, building tree houses and stuff, and you know, getting tool kits for, asking for a woodwork set for for Christmas maybe, you know. But I remember um, like and getting my first guitar of seven years of age, writing a song on two strings, you know, it's things like that. But when I look back on everything, I can see, I can see it was woodwork for me. It was art. It was music. It was the things that I loved. And then the sport was in there, the boxing, and I, I did play Gaelic football as well. I loved that. But like, when I was away in them places, you know, like in France, you know. It all stood to me, you know, all, all the things that I experienced. And to this day, I love working with wood, you know, like I, I resort back to it. I do a lot of, I have a lot of love of wood, you know, I just love working with wood. And like, I'm going to have to put a new floor down in my, my new gallery, like a hundred year old floor that I, I, I salvaged, you know, and it's, 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 it's beautiful. Like the floors come out well. And like that floor cost me 40 pounds, you know, but. Wow. But it's brilliant. But they, I, I bought really nice oil for it and, you know, and then I sanded the oil in and sand and put, you know, a couple of good coats of, um, a matte varnish, like, and put a lot of work and love into the floor, but you can see it, you know. But that's the, you know, the stuff you learn from being on the road. The thing about carpentry, I, I do bits of carpentry still now here. I'm living in Madrid in Spain, and you know, I have a workshop downstairs, and it's great sometimes even just to escape and you know, and to do bits. And as you said, the smell of the wood, and but even to finish something and look at it and go, Jesus, that didn't turn out too bad. That looks well, and it's great. It's kind of, uh, I think, like this idea with men's sheds and these things to help men deal with depression and women and everything. But I think they're great things because, you know, working on the tools doesn't always have to be slog. And then you can pace yourself and you can, you know, it's great for kind of mental health issues like that in the sense, because sometimes people just need to escape reality and, and sometimes working on a project or being around the wood can, I think, help people a lot. Big time, you know, there's no doubt about that, you know. Like I, I hate to see any wood going to waste. I'm terrible for hoarding wood, you know, keeping wood. But I like, I, I made two frames in my, my in my gallery made out of um, one of them was made out of the, the floorboards, and I made one out of old skirting boards, you know. I made frames for my pictures, you know. And it's kind of, but I, I love that feeling of saving something and getting new life, you know. I'm exactly the same. I. I... I hope sometimes I find in Spain here, the one good thing is that people throw out sometimes really good furniture and I'm driving by with my wife and I say, look at that. That's fine. But see, they don't really fix things here. They buy new things and things are thrown out. So I've picked up many a time an old table or an old chair or some wood 
and stuff and I'd say I can use that or resalvage it and then I'd build maybe a, a, a little I bought, built a Lego table for my young fella out of a cot I found uh, and I mean there's so many things you can do with wood it's it's you know wood is solid but it's pliable and it can turn into anything well, like we definitely we definitely do waste a lot of stuff you know and I, I understand I know what you mean because like that's the same for me in France you know I, I I'm always gathering antiques over in France I have a lot of love of antiques you know and like when I was just saying there, after I came back from Paris and Euro Disney, I worked for there for over a year. When I came back, I then ended up going to England to work in Portsmouth, you know, and I worked on the roads for three years on the Jack Jackhammer, you know, working for McNicholas in Portsmouth. And I worked along from Portsmouth over to Brighton, you know, the whole south coast of England, digging holes and shuddering. But that's where I, I developed a love of uh, cast iron fireplaces and, and antiques, you know. I was working at a house, I'd say at a house one morning, and um, this man asked, if I drop them off four bags of cement and some sand, and it was down in the cobble streets in South Sea in Portsmouth, and I, I dropped them off the stuff, and, he, and then in payment he says, "Come into the house. You can have whatever you want in the house." Walked around the house. The house was upside down. It was like a student's house. I seen this old cast iron fireplace in the corner, but it was pulled out. I says, "Can I have that?" I took it home in, in the back of my car. Christmas I got it valued. It was worth six hundred pound, you know, and I just fell in love with fireplaces. But that began an interest in antiques for me, you know, as well as among other things, you know, but. Um, that was all part of the working the working journeys, you know. And I, I was done England for three years there, you know. And, and then I kind of went to uh, I went to Norway or uh, t- Turkey, and then uh, England or London for a while, then Turkey, and then I went to Norway for a couple of years as well, building houses as well, you know. But it's kind of um, no, it's just you know, we, I, I'm I'm sort of always I can't walk past stuff, and I hate to see stuff wasted. And I think as humans, we waste a lot of stuff, you know. I can't bear. Yeah. I can't bear the the waste and, and you know the extravagance. You know, it's a shame when you see something that's not used to its potential. Like if something's really, really broken and you know can be only used as firewood, but sometimes things have so much more potential as as what they are or as something else they could be. You know, because there's so many things. Because look, for example, in the UK and everything, the amount of salvage yards and everything there are. Because there are so many things that can be salvaged. So I mean, it's a it's a great thing and. The antique fireplaces and the antique, you know, things from houses, they can always be reused and are valuable. Oh, yeah. I, I'm gathering a lot of antiques in France now this last five, six years, and uh, I've been selling them in my new gallery, you know, and uh, I'm selling antiques as well in the gallery. French French antiques, and uh, like I sold over 19 items there, and I only had about 30 items that I presented in the shop, and a lot of people dead interested in stuff, you know, and this is stuff that kind of... I picked up this, you know. Brilliant, brilliant. Let's, um, I want to talk about your family for a minute, obviously, because, you know, we, we spoke about your mom and dad there. So uh, do you, do you, how many brothers and sisters did you have? Or were you an only child? I have one sister. So I have, um, I have a sister who's two years younger than me, Alison. Um, so I have one sister, you know, and she's married and uh, she's she's an occupational therapist, you know, and it was just, you know, thinking back about Alison, she was very, um, when we were young growing up, she was listening to the Gypsy Kings, at a very young age and doing yoga when nobody was doing it, you know, and she was a very interesting and very amazing and, and intelligent and sort of gentle sort of a person. But she, she, do, she works with a lot of people that are suffering mental illness, you know, and, uh, and she, she's, she's a brilliant job and she's, she's good at it and she helps people, you know, but, uh, she's a lovely, love, lovely, lovely way about her, you know, and, but I, I always thought like, I always think about her. I always think how ahead of her time she was when we were very young, you know, and like, she was doing this stuff in the late seventies. She was listening to the stuff, and you know, the, the mid eighties, like she was listening to the Gypsy Kings and stuff, and like doing yoga, you know, like back then, you know. And and Jim, like you, you have kids, don't you? 
Yeah, I, I've, I have two sons and uh, my partner, my fiance, I should say, actually, Emma, uh, we, between us, we have, um, Emma has three kids and I, I we, me and Emma had a boy together, we Sonny James, and I have a son from a previous relationship, Dulta, and, and Emma has three 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 kids, so there's there's five in our house, there's seven all together in our house. Wow. Is How old is Dulta? Is he still at home or? Dulta's 19 now, so he's, he's, he's at home, he's, he's playing football, he's training and he's, he's he's works in Tesco's and he's also studying at university in Belfast to be an accountant, you know. So he's, uh, this is a, this is his first year. At Dulta's nineteen, he's a big lad, six foot three, great lad. You know, he 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 was schooled in County Clare. You know, he done all his primary school, and we, he come here when he was twelve, or just turning thirty. I twelve, I think it was. Come to the north, and um, yeah, he he done he done uh, most of his primary school in, in the west in the west of Ireland. You know, so we did. We, we, we had a, yeah. What was it? A big difference for him. It was, you know, but I have to say we, we were very lucky because, you know, he, he, he had a great, um, what do you call it, he had a preschool, like a, a, a nursery school in, in, in Kinvar. He was very nurtured in it too. It was by a lovely woman, Anne, and, and uh, I forget the lady's name. Uh, oh, it's one out of my head. But anyway, there was two lovely ladies and he, he, he had a very good ex- school experience. Then we went out to Newquay, you know, and um, we, we were in the parish of Bell Harbour in Newquay and uh, he had a brilliant school there, New Key Primary School, National School. Like there was only there wasn't a lot of kids at the school, and the teacher was the, the head teacher was Mrs. Tyne, you know, and he, he got a great great education. I have to say, and it, it really has stuck to him because there's one other teacher, Mrs. Noonan, and they all told me when he was at school that he was a mathematical genius when he was when he was really young, and I I kind of wasn't sure because like I wasn't giving him much sort of like I, I was helping him a bit with the homework, but I wasn't seeing it, you know, but. When he when he come to the north here, I was told it again by a couple of other teachers, and then now he's ended up doing maths, you know, and you know, he, sort of, you know, that's they seen stuff in him, you know, and it's great because he's he's doing what he's meant to be doing, you know, and what he's good at, you know, sort of thing. Can I ask you a question? Obviously, because for anybody moving between the south and and the north, is there a, a much of a difference? Do you did you find your kids in the schooling system? Yeah, to be honest, I. I've, the change I, at the start, I was very, you know, I wasn't sure whether to come north or not. I'd, I'd met Emma in 2013, and you know, and then, I mean, you know, a lot of stuff happened in my house in Bell Harbour, and all. We we had quite a difficult time, you know. We were told to get out and stuff by the house went into receivership, but you know, I was worried about what you're saying there, coming north and schooling and all that, and it, it was a bit difficult at the start when we got here. I have to say, you know, I always said to myself, you know, that this will do do it good, you know, coming north as well. I bet I've experienced the south and the west. They'll have experienced the north, you know, which would be good for him. But uh, see, we didn't get. He'd only started seaman uh, when we first moved here. He don't, I don't know what the difference would be, you know, in the schooling systems properly. But uh, you know, I do. I do know we have a good. I know there's good schools here. I know that. You know, there, there's some good. If you want to educate, you know, you, you have to apply yourself, obviously. But there's also there's good opportunities here for schooling, and I think there's good opportunities in the west of Ireland or in the south of Ireland as well. You know. Um, I don't know the difference. Well, there's only there's only one there's only one thing I will say. There's one big difference I can tell you. When we come here, we didn't have to buy books the way we had to buy books. You know, I remember. Okay. You know that, that I'll tell you a wee quick story here that it's actually heartbreaking. You know, the when my son started Seamount, we started in the September and then we moved north in the January. When my son started in Seamount, I hardly, I, I, the books was, I couldn't get over the price of the books when I went to try and buy them as a single parent. 
And, you know, I was shocked at the price of all these new books and how much it cost. Now, I was only bringing one kid to school. Like, I, I met families that had two kids. But the Monday morning my son was meant to start school, I had enough money on the Saturday to buy the the, the, the remainder of the books. And he wouldn't, go, he wouldn't go into the school on the Monday and see mine because he hadn't got all his books. And I had to phone the principal. Yeah, yeah. We sat outside the school in Gort, or outside the shop in Gort, and I had to phone the principal and, and tell the principal that he won't go into school. We're sitting here waiting in the shop open to buy the books on the Monday because I had a gig on the Sunday. And, and that, that left me enough money to pay the rest of the books because the books was like, it was well over £400, you know, in books that I had to buy as well as uniforms and all the rest. But I remember just think I remember thinking to myself, that's an awful lot of money, you know, on, on, on parents, you know, at the that's time. That's shocking. That's crazy. You know? That's crazy. That was one thing, you know, I, I thought was a bit tough that, you know, in primary schools or sorry, going to going to the, your, your secondary school or, or high school that you had to buy your books, you know, um, you know, it is really hard. It's, I mean, like you said, so many people and so many families had that situation. I remember my own mother and father, you know, the same way at times they're tough, you wouldn't have much money. And, you know, you would have this big school bill book and then you had to cover the books. And Jesus, I mean, there were, it, it was like, you know, buying books and stuff was like buying, you know, hundreds of euros worth of tools for a carpenter or something because it was crazy the stuff the kids had to pay for and the families. No, definitely. Like, you know, like, like I was I was paying rent as well and, you know, and paying rent and trying to rear my son on my own and buy the books, you know. And, and then, like, I remember meeting families, you know, that were trying to do that as well with maybe two kids, you know. Like, I was only one kid, you know. I think the government should look at that, you know, and, you know, and buy the books. That's one thing I noticed here was a bit of relief, you know, you didn't have to buy the books. And another thing was health service. You know, I, I found the health service here very helpful and good. And, you know, there's there's, there's a couple of things that are easier here, you know, and I found the rent slightly lower, you know. I, 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 could, I could kind of, I could live here cheaper, you know. You know, you, you know that's one thing about the north. You know, I, I don't have the view that I have in um, Bell Harbour, maybe, or, or, you know, in the west, you know. You know, you're paying for it. You're paying for it there. That's the thing. In Ireland, we have so many beautiful views and scenery. But I know myself, like I'm here seven years in Spain. But, you know, whenever I go back to Ireland now, I'm shocked by the prices. And if I move back there sometime, I'm going, it's going to take me a month to acclimatize again because the price of everything compared to living in Spain. Big time, big time. You know, like even I noticed, sir, since I left, you know, the west of Ireland, um, so many friends have left, you know, after me. You know, I thought it was just me leaving, you know. But a lot of people have left and said the same thing, you know. Just, you know, a lot of people left because they couldn't afford it, you know, and, and circumstances changes, changed, you know. And, and that's that's a shame, but, you know, that's the, that's the way the world is going now. Can I ask you, um, just with, with your family now, obviously with COVID, I don't want to dwell on COVID too long, um, but it, how has it, you know, how has it affect, affected the mental health and how your family are at the moment with the restrictions? To be honest, you know, people are always on about this. And I, I, I kind of, as I always say, I've been locked down all my life. <laughs> I feel, you know, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, like I'm, I'm pretty used to having nothing, pretty used to having plenty as well. I'm used to living in a room, a small room, big room. You know, I'm used to whatever's thrown at me. I'll make the best out of it. But our kids seem to be doing okay. Like, you know, they all, um, they're doing, like, We've always something to do. We've got a the lads built a little gym out the back, you know. The, the two bigger lads built a gym out the back. They're in and out of that all the time, and they're keeping fit, you know. Um, and you know, they all seem to be busy, you know. My the only thing like I will say is we're, maybe we're struggling with is uh, homeschooling. You know, we're homeschooling my little son, Sonny James, and he's six, you know, and uh, he's missing that wee bit of social interaction. I think with his friends, you know, at school. 
Um, it you know, and our house isn't big here, you know, by no means, and we're all we're all unhappy each other and stuff. But the, you kind of learn to live around each other that way, you know, when you're seeing each other all the time. And yeah, you know what you do. Yeah, yeah. Families, families are moving on. Yeah. yeah, and in a very Simon, in a very strange way, and I don't I want to say this just in case it offends some people, but some of this has been there's been some positives too because it slowed us down a bit and made us sort of revalue life and each other. And you know, like a Saturday night for me now is going up to the the nearest shop and buying some nice food and coming down to the house and cooking it with Emma. You know, that's that's a night out now and enjoying a bottle of wine. You know, I don't have to be anywhere special or or you know at. at you know, and uh, taking great enjoyment out of little simple things. You know, like I, I wrote a song there just the other night. They're called "Little Things." You know, and it, it's it's about it's actually about couples forgetting. And you know, you do when you're in relationships, you you forget to do the little things. You know, and it's the little things that are important. And that's the same in family life. You know, and and you know, just sitting around the table together and having time. Whereas life has become very fast, and we're on phones, and we're running here, running there. Yeah. This yeah. is, you know, that, that's the problem, isn't it? You know, in a way, in a way, like like if you take their the stock exchange in, in New York, remember they got floods and everything stopped one day. You know, and I keep thinking there's going. I I always keep thinking. You know, that's what, I keep buying lots of candle holders in France and and uh, stoves and stuff, and I keep saying to people, you know, just get ready. It's common that we're going to end up back to being self sufficient. You know. And stuff because we re- we rely so much on numbers on electric and, and banks you know and, and stuff and one day then banks aren't going to work that hole in the wall like and the banks are slowly but surely I think losing their their own of themselves you know I just don't trust you know all this we rely on too much stuff you know no we we have to become more self sufficient because you know even yesterday the power went for like twenty minutes and my kids were panicking and I was like relax relax it's okay we have some candles and you know. But- <laughs> The thing is, yeah, yeah. in the past, when, when me and you were younger and stuff, you know, the power could go off anytime or the power could get cut off because no one paid the bill. So, but nowadays kids are so used to everything being on. It's like they panic if there's no Wi-Fi. So it's, it's, it would be a complete shock for a lot of kids and teenagers if everything shut down, wouldn't it? Well, that's it. I like, you know, I, I was just thinking there, I often lay in Bell Harbor a minute for two or three days with no electric, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and that was like sort of, 2009 and 2012 and 11, you know, but I'm just saying, you know, or no heating, you know, like like another thing, heating, like I never, our heating, our heating always kept breaking in the house I was renting, you know. Well, well that, that's it, yeah, the, the, the struggles that were more real one time, now they're like, you know, when they say first world problems, but sometimes they're not a problem at all. It's just people don't have those luxuries. Yeah, I, I just think as well, you know, as well, it's not fair for children as well, because kids have become so, uh, they expect so much. You know, like you know, the best trainers, the best phones, the best laptops, yeah. and it's yeah, yeah, and a lot of it's yeah. given. It's not it's not earned, you know, and, and they don't know the price of stuff, you know, and the, it, no, there's no value. But even like you know, I'm not giving out about children or nothing, but like, and maybe I'm getting old myself, but I'm just saying uh, the the respect the respect for older people is is not as you know it needs to be more, you know. There's one thing I want to go back to there. You just gave me a really vivid memory was when you were saying about having the two strings i was the same way with on the two strings on the guitar for the first year i had a guitar i had one string and i remember i loved rock music and stuff and i'd be listening to joe satriani and you know metallic and guns rose and everything but i remember i'd be doing all the whatever the guitar solo or the melody i'd be doing it on one string linear and uh, i remember after about a year, I said, I'm going to bite yeah. the bullet now and get some strings and learn how to put them on. And then it was like, oh, Jesus Christ, there's chords as well. Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> you brought that memory back to me. <laughs> oh, I, I, I remember, I can remember uh, 
when I was young, I, I think I got a guitar for one of my birthdays when I was six or seven. But I remember always in the window pretending I was Elvis Presley, hoping the neighbours would see me, listening to Elvis Presley and stuff and dancing and the Beatles. And the first album coming to our house was Bridge Over Troubled Water from Simon Garfunkel. It was posted from Canada. But yeah. but I remember breaking all the strings in the guitar and left the two strings and writing a song on it called If You Know What's Good For You, You Better Leave Me Alone was the name of the song. <laughs> really? And that, that was, like, I was looking back, I was living, I was getting beat up in the house estate, you know, at the time. That was the song. And like I could even sing the melody. Of two strings. It goes, if you know what's good for you, you better leave me alone. That was it, you know. <laughs> Isn't that mad? It sounds a bit angelic too. That's that's like you know, it just it, it's funny when you look back at stuff, you know. It, it it explains what was going on. Something I came across, and um, when I was just looking into you a little bit more, is a singer Jim McKee. Do you know that? No, no. What's that? Sorry. Do you know what that is? No. I found this on Wikipedia and it, so listen, listen to this. Singer Jim McKee is a 1924 American silent Western film. <laughs> Did you ever see that movie? No, no, they didn't see it, no. Yeah, so that's something now for you to look up. I came across that and I was like, wow. I said, Obviously, your name is Jim McKee, but you know, sometimes when people say, oh, where did you get your name or where did the name come from? But I was laughing at this. I was thinking, Jesus, this is perfect. This movie is perfect for Jim, singer Jim McKee. It's funny. It's, that's a good. It's funny you say that because there's a friend of mine who I hadn't been chatting to for years, who lives in Wexford now and married in Wexford. He's a piper, you know. He sent me a song yesterday by James McKee, this old man singing a song from the late 1800s. It was up from the archives, you know. It was absolutely amazing. So it was maybe maybe that's the same guy. I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check it out because I got this yesterday in a message, you know. I have this here. I only took the I just wrote down as a note the information. Um but it's a nineteen twenty four movie, so maybe it's about that guy's life. Who knows? God knows this guy had a this guy had a head off and go something happened and he had a I think he had a it was it was Central Australia, you know. This this guy. But uh, it was very interesting, you know. It's funny you say that about family. There's one side of my family that's very interesting. It's actually, this was found out as well. My grandmother, my, my father's mother, was called Britta McKee. Her father was Terence, her father was Arthur Bruce O'Neill. Arthur Bruce O'Neill was the brother of Terence O'Neill, who was the president of Northern Ireland. Arthur Bruce, Arthur Bruce O'Neill was killed in, in action. But Arthur Bruce O'Neill, my, my, my granny was a, adopted in a workhouse. Her mother was McLaren. She was adopted by a family called McInespies in Cookstown. But her 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 mother was McLaren from Toome, who worked in a in a country house that was owned by the O'Neills, you know, at the time, who would have been the sort of very well off people. And apparently Arthur Bruce O'Neill had his way with the, the maid, the chambermaid, and the ch the child was taken off my 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 um my my granny's mother at the time and put into the workhouse. My my granny was adopted in the workhouse. She she was adopted in, in the workhouse where in, in Cookstown. There was a workhouse in Cookstown. In Cookstown, my yeah, but, right. but my granny was adopted. But if you check that, like, the blood out, like that's the O'Neills, that's the, the, the kings of Ireland. The, the, the Shane's Cahill, wow. Shane's Castle, yeah, Hugh O'Neill, yeah. But it, or, yeah. Or it goes into all that. But there's there's some history there. That I have to do research than Lord Cochran and all these, these. But I, but it makes a lot of sense. That's interesting though, because um, you know, obviously. You know, with with genealogy, my mother is a genealogist, uh, Fra Francis Madden, and um, she's she's remarried now. She's a different name, but she is um, a genealogist, and that's the kind of thing she looks into. Where going back through people's history, and she, you know, has found people in America who were immigrants, and you know, but she has 
uh, contacted the family of those people and reconnected them. So it's a really interesting subject because nowadays we have better technology and it's easier to maybe find some of the archives. So it's interesting when you look back, isn't it? Who you are and where you came from. Unbelievable. So it's like, like even my father's side is Frank McKee. He was a butcher and in 1903, he was 19 years of age. He was in America, rustling cattle across America and horses. And he came back in 1916, he came back. So he did. But uh, that's really, I find it fascinating, you know. And I remember the first time I went to Chicago, I walked, I was walking along the street. The first thing I seen was the statue of a cow on the street, you know. And I could, I, I could nearly feel the sense of my grandfather being there, you know, which he had, you know. Wow. But like it's, that's crazy. It's, it, that's crazy. I, there's a lot of stuff in my life, I have to say this, has happened things, you know, that like really, like even I remember one day sitting in Del Harbour and reading a book and, and, uh, I was sitting in Del Harbour and, and little did I know that the O'Neills brought the Christianity to Corkham Wabi and the O'Keans from Dungiven, you know, up oh. from Limavati, you know. And, and yeah. I, but I was living on that road where that abbey is, you know. And like, it's kind of, you know, your ancestors could have been there, you know. It's funny, isn't it? Like, you know, not being too spiritual, Andy, but it's funny how things can take you back to locations where there was a history or connection from your past, no? Yeah, unbelievable. You know, it, it, it's, it's happened a lot, you know, and, and you find, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of closer to stuff than you realise, you know, and reasons for being places. Like even I go to, like, like I'm going to France every summer to work with kids doing art and stuff, and I've been going there a long time now, and I was driving past this graveyard every day for, you know, every, every summer, and then we found out there's a little boy from Armagh, from Katie Armagh there, who was buried, you know, and I got to hear his story, I wrote a song about it, but there's a little guy buried there, and uh he died. He died one hundred years to the day. Bastille Day. He died on. He was killed, and he was. But his story is phenomenal. What happened to him? Like, and if you hear this story, like, he ended up joining the army. And he ended up. He emigrated to Canada from Belfast. But he was his family all died in Kitty in, in County Armagh. You know, of the fever back in the time. And he, him and his sister had to go and live with family in Belfast. The family emigrated to 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 the Canada. He ended up joining the army from the, in Canada. He, he it was compulsory. But because he was Irish, he had to go on the front line. And he ended up dying, you know, but he, he died just nearly before the war ended. He was two years in the front line and then he died just near the, the close of the war. But he died on Bastille Day. But when I was in France, I met this family over there and the family uh, were over to, they were over to find this grave. They found the grave and it was 100 years to the day he died. They, they found his grave and they'd done this ceremony. The mayor, I am very good friends with the mayor of the village. The mayor took me for dinner with them. I'm sitting around the table talking to all these people. Next Next thing... My my partner's name comes up about her book. The next thing, we start chatting, and, and the woman said that she was. It's uh, Emma was at school with her sister, and I goes, "All right." I says, "Who's your sister, Colette?" I goes, "Oh, Colette." I goes, "Colette Daly." I goes, "She married John Daly." She goes, "That's my cousin." You know, we're sitting around the table, but it's such a small world. And I was sitting. These people have been over, you know, like and you know, like. Stuff is very close to us all around, you know, in life, you know, you find there's signs and there's wee things. We're, we're closer than we think, you know. People always say, you know, are we alone out there? But whatever about anything out in, in the universe, I mean, we're, the world is a big place, but there's so many connections and everybody's connected so tightly sometimes, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Big, and like, you know, there's always reasons. And, and like, if, you, if you look into places where you are, you know, there's always something there that, you know, you have to sort of maybe find out or, or so, there's a reason for you being there, you know. I found it a lot of times, you know. So, Jim, so let's uh, you go back to the music. So you were listening to Elvis a lot. And would you say that Elvis was kind of the main reason you picked up the guitar? It, it would have been one of the reasons, you know. And 
definitely one of the reasons, you know, and my uncle as well. And there was a few people that you know that I met as well in housing states. So this man as well, many years ago, I remember one day he sang a song, uh, "Stand by Thee," on his guitar. Remy Lammer, his name it was, but he sang this this song one day in, in, in the afternoon in, in his house. And uh, you know, the way you get them wee moments where something just sticks with you, and I goes, "I'm gonna, do, I, I want to do that," and you go home and do it, you know. But I had a lot of that happen, you know, and, and then Elvis would have been an album that was in our house. I, I loved what, for some reason, I was fascinated by Elvis performing, you know, and the rock and roll thing. And then Sam and Garfunkel and then the Beatles, you know, was, was big for me as well. And then I, I love folk music as well. I was big into my uncle's band and my uncle, he kind of, my uncle gave me three chords or three chords and he gave me a kick up the ass and he says, don't come back to me till you can sing a song, you know. And Till you know them. Till you can sing a song. And I had to come back and I remember coming back and singing the, the banks of the old hey ho or something or or shaking stevens oh yeah i remember that song but, yeah i remember singing by the banks yeah you know but that was one of the first and you know and then i learned you know i went into learning the streets of london and stuff like that you know that i really liked you know and, and the stand by me and the, there were party pieces in you know but it just it, you know it was mostly i think watching people play was 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 what got me you know when i heard someone sing a song with a guitar it done something to me i don't know what it was you know? Yeah, yeah. So you know what? Do you remember when you wrote your first song? Was it the Was it the one? If you don't leave me alone, was that the first song? That was one of the first ones, and then for years, you know, that was one of the first ones. But mostly in my teens, I was writing, and you know, I was writing lots and lots of stuff and scribbles and like I've, I've bits of verses. I can see where I'd written them and I put them into songs that are like I had a song Uncle Pete that I started writing when I was seventeen, and then it didn't get finished. I was in around twenty, you know. But some of it was written at different times, yeah. you know. But I was always always scribbling ideas. And when I look back, I was always writing, looking to write stories as well and, and dreaming, you know, ideas up. And when I was at school as well, I was a very dreamy kind of a person, you know, always daydreaming and, and ideas, you know, and always these mad ideas, you know. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's great. So, do, you know, for you as a teenager, obviously, once you had your three chords in the banks of the old Ohio, um, did you say, I'm going to join a band or I'm going to sing on my own or did you try and get gigs? Well, when I was 15, there's footage somewhere when I was 15, I, I sang in, in a bar one night. There was a session one night in my school uniform. I was sitting singing from Claire to here, example. And uh, I was singing and I always wanted to start bands and I could never, I could never kind of get, like, when I was 12, our whole housing estate divided. You feel what I mean? All my friends. The whole thing broke up, and then there was the eleven plus. The eleven plus as well come along with that the examination, and if you fail it, so a lot of my best friends all went to different schools, and we all went to different schools. Then the, the, the troubles broke the whole thing up, so we all went off in different ways. And I always wanted to start bands, like all my life, wanted to start bands, and you know, trying to. But I mostly, what all I done was solo, and I, I'd have played at any any chance. I was offered a few things, you know, and to play in pubs and stuff with a few people, but I was very shy about it. I actually didn't do my first pub gig until I was 26. And you know, I went solo. And, and that was in Norway. I'd done that, I done that in North Norway. And my leg was shaking, you know. And I'd, I'd done a lot of busking as well. And I, I went to a lot of sessions, you know, and I'd always sung one or two songs, you know, uh, at a session. And then I was always building my confidence, trying to build my, I was very, I was, I was so shy when I was young, you know, very, very shy. But... Um, so you were saying there with the music, so... You, you were playing and doing solo gigs and you did a gig in Norway. Did you, you know, what was it like for you when you were writing your own songs and you thought, I'm going to release an album? Or how did that come about? How did you think, I'm going to put this out there? Well, I, I've been gathering songs for years and, and you know, I started to write a lot of stuff about you know, what happened in the Troubles and I started to write about stuff that was happening in my life and about uncles leaving, going away and working and stuff. And with all the travels in South Africa and France and Norway and all these places... I'd been gathering material all the time. 
uh, for instance, uh, when I was in Norway, uh, one St. Patrick's Night in 1986, I rode all around the world. I was 26 years of age. Uh, I rode about being homesick and missing, you know, longing for a familiar face on a St. Patrick's Night because there was no Irish there at all. I was living away up in a place called Hartstad in the Arctic Circle. So I gathered all these songs and I'd be gathering songs and poems. And one of my friends, I'd give you a poem actually that he'd written and asked me to put music to it, a song called Gone Fishing. So I, I, when I was living in Norway, I had this album written out in my head just a piece off. I said, I'm going to record that, but I didn't know how to go about it. I hadn't got the money. And back, I started recording the songs and tape recorders and stuff. And back when, when I moved to Kinvara, uh, which was, what was that? What do I see? Was it 2019 years ago? Uh, in around the 2001 mark, you know, when I moved to Kinvara. I was opened up to all this, uh, these musicians and recording studios and things. I'd been in several bands as well now in, in the north and Belfast traditional bands and stuff. And I'd, I'd been in there recording songs like I recorded a song I wrote called Homeless Piano Man. Uh, from, from sort of mid 90s to the year 2000, I had been in different lineup bands, you know, like traditional bands. And I'd been gathering, writing songs and in and out of recording studios recording. And I, I was always looking to make a solo album, you know. So, off I went making a solo album. It took me six years in, in the west of Ireland. I had very little money at the start, and I kept doing a little bit at a time, you know. And from that, I just things happened, you know. And then when I got the first album out, a lot of things happened, you know. But there was lots of things happened. Like to be honest, I got a lot of opportunities in the west of Ireland, you know. A lot of people lived as artists and musicians, and it opened up a lot of doors, you know. There was a great culture, I mean, in, in, and there still is, of music in the West. Unbelievable, you know, like, there's nothing like it. And, and, you know, although there's a lot of recording going on now with all the laptops and with all the stuff we got now, computer, but back, if you can imagine, in the 90s, I hadn't got that. I, I started recording my album on a tape recorder in 1999. You know, first started to demo the songs myself, you know, and I didn't release that album to 2008. But I had it, I had it finished and recorded for 2006. It was mixed in Sun Street Studios in June. I started recording Paul Mulligan's in in Kinvara, and I um, I recorded. Sorry, I actually started recording Paddy Kerr's bedroom in, in Galway upstairs in his bedroom, Bridge Street. And then I, I took all the recordings. I recorded uh, some in Paul Mulligan's studio and some in Bruno Stahlin's studio in, in Kinvara. And all these studios and all the stuff carried up. Took it to Sun Street Studios and recorded my first solo. I mixed my first solo. I'm sorry. And Brandon O'Regan edited it, you know, and uh, done some producing on it, and Kenny Ralph. But that's the first album official that I released as a solo album was Jimmy Key, just a piece off in 2008. But that was a that was from songs from the early 90s, sort of late teens, 1988, sort of onwards. I was writing and stuff. But there's bits of the songs are just there's bits of songs from all over, you know, you know, and mem and memories and ideas. I, I I see me going back to stuff even to this day, like. From my childhood, and I'm trying to write a song about it now. You know, you were saying about Kenny. If I know Kenny and Mary well, and um, you know, he's, I think he was a bit sick at the moment. Kenny actually, um, I was talking, to, I was talking to Mary there a few weeks ago, and I think he was a bit ill. I didn't know. That. I'm not sure how he is now, but hopefully he's good. Um, but Kenny obviously, you know, has a rich history there in tune with Leo Moore and the Saw Doctors and everything. It's Great place, no? Oh, fantastic. I, I'd have been a big fan of the Saw Doctors growing up, you know, and, and like I was just saying there, that they've released N17 again, or somebody's released it after 30 years. And I'd have bought all them albums when I was, like, no matter where I was, uh, when I, whenever I came back to Tyrone, or if I'd have been away, I'd have bought, you know, Stock and Swing, and I'd have bought uh, the Saw Doctors, that kind of music when I was away from home, you know. And 
always listened to music, you know, new music. And, and I, like, that's the thing I discovered when I lived in the West of Ireland, that the tune was a very rich place for music, you know, like, and, you know, original songwriters like Noli McDonald and, you know, um, you had, uh, what do you call him? That, he wrote the Galway Puddles, you know, that song, Leo, uh, Park Stevens. Uh, Park Stevens, you know, like, some of his songs are, are amazing. So they're, and, you know, Leo Moran, the sawdockers, like, I, what I loved about them was they're writing about their own lives and their own, their own areas and their own culture, you know, and, and that was beautiful. So I've, I've been inspired by the sawdockers and, and, and the tomb, you know, and meeting Kenny Ralph was, was an amazing thing, you know, so for me and Mary, what a lovely lady, like, and, you know, I met his son, Ken, Ken as well, and I, I had an amazing time in that studio. Like, we mixed my album there and, uh, you know, I also went in there and recorded an album with a band called the White Hair Band from the North. We never released it, but it's, it was recorded there. You know, but I, uh, I great, uh, uh, like, then I think you know, the songwriters and the, the scene in Round Tune was ahead of its time. You know, yeah, no, there was there was great things, and you know, there's some great bands come out of Tune, and it was amazing. You know, I'm gonna. Would you be interested in doing a song for us? I'll try one. I don't know how I'm gonna do this. We'll, we'll try it. <laughs> Whatever is comfortable for you. This is a song I wrote from afar, and it's it's on a new album called The World Will Be Loved that I haven't released, but uh, I released this song on a video on YouTube uh, November, I think it was, uh, 30th of November 2020, so it's, it's not that sort of uh, long since I released it. I'll, I'll try it for you. Hopefully this sounds okay. I remember your smile and the things you said The taste of your food That you grew so well I can still see The garden of me The colors you planted From all over the world And green fruited man Flowers to grow, and grandchildren's knees carved on apple trees, waiting for you. Butterflies and bees. A big bad world. Upside down, gone mad. The things you thought stand by me well. These are new breeds, all innate to flowers. Like the swallows you fed, they keep coming back.
Voice sounds great too. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, that's a that's a nice song. So that that was the song we were talking about earlier about your dad, and you can hear it. You can hear it in the lyrics. They're very heartfelt. So it's really nice. Oh, thank you very much. I that's uh, I it's kind of a <clears throat> sweet tribute to him. You know, before he passed away from cancer, before he, he, had a, he had a horrific sort of a death, to be honest, and uh, he suffered for about a year and a half. But um, before he went away. He, he wrote his he wrote his all his grandchildren's names on his apple trees. He carved their names on apple trees. That's what the song was. That's why I thought it would make a nice song because I thought it was a lovely thing to do before he passed away. You know. Wow. Yeah. So that's yeah, that, leaving something behind. For that him. was it. You know, and he, he said he said before he passed away, he was sitting in the garden and he, he got the bad news. Like, and the doctor told him he was sitting. And he just said he was going to miss his trees. He was sitting crying. You know, and I remember that day. You know, and I remember. I remember he, he carved the names out, you know, and I just thought it was such a lovely, making a good idea for a song, you know. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. That's where that come from. Let's move on to your art now, because obviously you said you've been doing art for years. But when did you start, you know, when did you think about releasing art and, and, you know, trying to turn it from a hobby to a career? Well, it, it kind of started for me in Kinvara. When, when I had... Uh, arrived in Kinvara, I had done some oil painting in the north of Ireland and uh, one day I was coming out of a house and I took had a paint, one painting in my hand with a frame on it and I was putting it in the van to bring it into Galway to show this framer the way I wanted this painting framed like the one I was bringing in and this lady stopped me in the street and she said I really like that, she said and I, I, I she said, have you any you know, how much is it? And I said, hold on a second, I have one more that goes with it, it was two paintings of a, a bog scene and the lady said, how much do you want for it? And I said, a punt. It was, at the time, it was still punts. And I said, give me a punt each for, for each piece. And uh, she turned around and she said, um, she said, I'll give you, she said, I'll tell you what, she said, I'll give you 100 punts for each one of them. They got there. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I said to myself, I said, saying she asked to buy the paintings, you know, I, I, I said a punt because I, I wasn't taking myself serious as a painter. But once she said £100 each for the paintings, from that day on, I took myself serious as a painter because I hadn't tried to sell myself, if you know what I mean. But anyway, that lady happened to be Mary Cochran, the jazz singer. And really? that, that's who it was. And she, she bought the two paintings. And from that day on, I'd also left a painting into Postscript that was a wee shop in Kinvara. It was owned by Deborah Evers. I left a piece in there and it sold. And in that time, Deborah asked me would I do a show in the Merriman Hotel, 2003. Uh, what I do a show in Kenny's, or sorry, in the Merryman, a, a group show with Manus Walsh and two other painters. 
and I agreed to do it. And I done sixteen pieces, and they sold. And then I done a show in the Cuckoo Flower, and then the Bold Gallery came out, and they contacted me in Galway, took me in, took photographs, and next thing I was doing a show there. I was selling art flat out, and then I went to Kenny's after that. They come and contacted me, and they went to Kenny's, and uh, I, I've been with Kenny's ever since. You know, in Galway, Kenny's is probably one of the only galleries that represent me in Ireland, except there's a, a throne gallery I'm in at the minute. You know, but it, it all started from that that meeting on the street. The selling the point, you know. Yeah, and for you, for you, when you like, how do you approach a piece? Do you does it? So is it like the songwriting? Does inspiration come from somewhere, or do you kind of have ideas that you try to put down? A lot of stuff. I, I every day, every day of life, like something will jump out at, at me. You know, like when I'm out, or else you know, you're walking down a hill, and you see the, the sun going down, you'll see a lovely landscape, or you'll see something. You know, or I look at a lot of art as well, you know. I study a lot of art and I look at a lot, but just lots of things, you know. And then I've took the painting songs from my mind as well, you know, things that have happened, you know. I have a lot of paintings that nobody's ever seen, actually, you know, healing paintings and stuff from the past that I plan to do in years to come. I want to show them in an exhibition sometime. But there's there's lots of sort of, I paint in lots of different sort of ways. There's, there's commercial painting and there's also paintings for me. And then there's paintings ideas that I have and you know, some people want to buy them some don't but I, I always I'm, I'm, I'm paint, I paint all sorts of stuff you know like it's just it could be anything you know it could be something as simple as a, a board in a window to a landscape till something, something somebody said I like recently had an idea about the lang- Irish language being sort of forgotten and I painted a, a bird's cage a crow trying to get out of a bird's cage dragged out been dragged out with blood sitting on the, on the edge of the, of the north of Ireland you know with a cage over him You'd have to see this to sort of understand it, but it, it speaks, you know, there's, it's a strong statement. But I've always, you know, and sometimes an idea can come from some, by a theme, you know, or something somebody said, you know. Like when you're out and you're walking about now, because of obviously modern camera phones, do you, do you, if you see a nice picture, do you take a picture and then want to paint that, or is it all painted from memory? Memory and phone. I, I use the phone a lot. And, you know, years ago, I used to use old mobile or, or disposable cameras, and I used to be in there at and Gollies all the time getting stuff printed. Flat out, like I've, I've hundreds and hundreds of boxes of stuff, you know. Although a lot of stuff got destroyed as well when I was moving back north, you know, got all got wet and got damaged. There's nowhere to put it. But I've lots and lots of photographs over the years. I've always, always taken photos. Always, you know, these mobile phones. I go through them like, like somebody, you know, the memories and stuff. I'm always clogged up with stuff. But um, no, I've lots of ways, you know. And sometimes the dog will bite, as I call it, and I just jump up and I have to paint an idea. They're sometimes the best, you know. And you know, and sometimes it's like a song or, or a painting. I can't sleep at night, and I have to go down. I know there's something cooking in me, and I have to write it down and get it out. And you know, and I'll sit with it for a while and work it. And it's the same with the painting. You know, sometimes there's an idea, and I, I get very uneasy or something. You know, your work has been shown in all these art galleries. But when did you get the idea to open your own art gallery? You know, for the paintings and the antiques and everything. Well, two two thousand eight. Well, when I lived in England, I was gathering the fireplaces and. and uh, Back in sort of the the mid nineties, I'd always this dream of going back and opening a like a a fireplace shop, you know, old fireplaces. But then when it, when the art took over, uh, in, in around two thousand eight, I, I was doing very well, so was, and then unfortunately things happened that I didn't do too well, you know, like the, the recession hit, and the, I also got caught where a check got bounced for a lot of money, you know, from a show that I'd done and in, in, down in Munster or down in sorry in Adair, you know, I got caught for a, a forty two thousand pound check, you know, bounced. But but in around that time, just before that, I was about to sort of I, I I had this dream in my head where I was about to buy a property and I I paid a deposit and was about to buy a property and I wanted to open my own gallery there, and then 
when I moved to Bell Harbor, when I was living in Bell Harbor, I was going to do it there as well. And then 2012, I was going to do it. You know, I, I, I'd been working on the film songs for me. You know, some of the songs got into film and I don't the film. But in around that time in 2012, I was, I, I, there's a gallery in Kinvar today, Sear, and in that building, I was in there talking to the owner of that building, and I was going to open the same kind of a gallery there. I had the plan to do it there then in 2012. So I've always had the idea, but it kept things kept happening and stopping it, you know. And then this, I, I, have, I have a studio here in in in, in this in Donnacmore here upstairs above my gallery, and I've had it for a couple of years. And then when the pandemic kicked in, those people moved out, you know, next door, and. A lot, the, the place downstairs, which was a barber shop, became available, so I turned it into a gallery, you know, and I took the chance, you know. I was in summer, and I was working in France in the summer when I came back. The opportunity arose, so I took it. But it, it's always been in my mind, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm just turning 51 now in April, and, you know, I opened it on my 50th birthday, and I, I just said to myself, you know, it's now or never. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, and to be honest with you, the reaction's been amazing, and, like, I've only been open 12 days out of since September. And a lot of people contact me pri- contact me privately, and they come and visit, and you know they buy art, and they also you know, get commissions, and I sell a lot of prints, and I paint a lot of cards, and I send the antiques. But it's you know it's been doing okay for the circumstances, and I'm, I'm actually really happy with the way the response has been. You know, opening a gallery, I suppose, for anybody can be difficult, but especially during this time, it's extremely difficult because if you're paying rent on a place. You have a building and then it's not open and then it's not bringing in any money. That can be quite challenging, no? Yeah, it, it has been. You know, and you know, I, I done all the work for it. You know, getting the place ready in September, and I, I didn't, I couldn't afford to pay anyone really. You know, because I needed to do all the work for that reason, because I had to fill up the stock. You know, and stuff which I did. But it, you know, we go back to what I said earlier. You know, the the prices up here aren't as bad as maybe Galway. You know. It's a, a little bit more affordable. I haven't had any support yet from the government. I've been trying. I've tried three times, you know, to get support with, you know, there's there's local localized support schemes in place. Uh, I am I am I am entitled because I'm I'm paying rates in the building, you know. But I was upstairs, as I said before, for two years, and I have a great landlord. I have to say, is you know, the, for me personally, the the rents aren't as crippling maybe as if you were in Belfast, say, or if you're in. Dublin or, or Galway, you know. I, I think that's it, as you said. Maybe that makes a bit of a difference for you. That's, so that's good. And uh, have you done any, you know, art exhibitions outside of Ireland in the last few years? I mean, have you, you say you go to France a lot there? Yeah, the last exhibition out of Ireland I done was in 2016. I done one, I done a show in France myself and Barry Kerr from uh, uh, Lurgan. He, he lives in Dublin now, Barry. We done a two-man show in, uh, in a theatre called In Lawns. The city of Lawns in North France. It was called Remembering Soldiers, you know, from the First World War and during the Easter Rising. And, you know, the whole story of the Irish, sort of that how they went to France through the war and, and what was going on in the history back in Ireland at the time, you know. So that was 2016. And then I had a show in 2019, a solo show at Kenny's Gallery, uh, uh, Dance of the Cherry Trees. That was John Spillan opened that for me. Uh, that was the last solo show I'd done, you know, sort of outside of, say, home here. Um, but, you know, there was talk of going to America as well before all this happened. You know, I've, I, I also had an opportunity to go to America twice, and I did. You know, I got sick one time and hurt myself, and I didn't go back in two thousand eight. So, you know, I would love to do something in, in in some of the big Irish cities in America. You know, but um, 
Is 2016 was the last show out of Ireland, you know, that I've done? It's good to hear, you know, it's going well for you, and I'm really, really happy for you. You know, I'm gonna, we're going to finish up in a second, so I just want to ask you, you know, what, what's your goals and your objectives now for 2021? What, what do you have in store? Well, at the minute, I'm, I'm kind of currently working on just sort of, you know, getting more antiques in France and uh, getting back on the road as well. I've been off the road, you know, driving for a while, so I'm back driving again. I've been, I'm, I'm trying to release some new music. I'm going to record more new songs. I have a lot of songs written as well. Um, and I just want to build the gallery stock, you know, and, and I'm taking a lot of commissions and I want to build the shop and the business, you know, more, you know, that's, I want to really work hard at that. I have a new website coming and that, you know, uh, just basically keep going and keep healthy, you know, and, and sort of happy and, you know, look after the family, you know, look after my kids and Emma, you know, that's priority as well, you know, and like, I feel very lucky and blessed, to be honest, to be in this position where I'm making a living from my own creation, you know. And it's been a long journey and a long road. It's been it's been amazing, really. Um, feel blessed, you know. Just it's like you know, it's it's for me basically. It's it's just about doing, keeping going, you know, what I'm doing, what makes me happy, which is painting and playing music, you know. And you know, home life is very important. Like I, I like being in the garden as well, you know, growing things and family life, you know, looking out, watching the kids, you know, watching the youngest kid go to school and doing, you know, growing up has been a real honour and. I'm very blessed as well, you know, to have Emma in my life. Emma's, Emma is an amazing lady, you know, and she's been very good to me in many ways, you know, and feel very lucky about that. Would you like to play us a song out? Would you like to play a song to finish it out? I, I don't mind. I, I might try this new song that I wrote called Little Things for the Crack. I'm going to say <laughs> goodbye to you and say thanks very much. You can play us out. So, you know, this is Jim McKee, everybody, and we'd like to thank Jim, and we'd like to wish him well in the future with his art and his music. And we hope this year has been as, will be as fruitful as the, fall, the past years, you know, because he's done an amazing job and he's made some amazing music and some amazing art. And, you know, I'd like to say, you know, thanks a lot, Jim. We appreciate it, and it's been really good, and we enjoy it, and we'd love to hear more. Jim McKee, everybody. Okay, I'm going to finish off, uh, Simon. This is a song called Hang On Till the Dawn. And uh, thanks very much for having me. And, and I'd like to wish you all the best out in Madrid. It's a song basically for keeping your keeping your sort of, keeping your spurs up through uh, depression and, and different times, you know. And uh, it was actually inspired by a friend of mine who sadly took his own life. Sometimes misunderstood, holding something close to your heart like you should. Do you ever feel lonely sometimes, thinking you lose, holding out this frightened child, worn out shoes? Try to stay Sometimes after a fall, do you 
Jim McKee and he played some nice music for us and we had an interesting chat about Jim's life so far and you know we want to wish him the best with his art and his music and really really nice guy really entertaining stories too so I hope you enjoyed that. Moving on to next week's guest so next week's guest is Michelle Lally so Michelle has been on the show before she um, was a we did a short interview with her at Christmas for the Christmas podcast and uh, it was very enjoyable and she sang some songs so Michelle is going to come on the show next week and she's going to tell us about her life story and all of the interesting things she's done and maybe some sing some music for us too so we hope you tune in for that so thank you very much everybody for listening and we hope you stay safe and take care of yourself and we will talk to you soon bye bye <music>